Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What have you managed like to stay alive with this? Oh, I'd like to go to the other I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. Come down to Anfield and we'll see them. What are you doing down here, you showing man? It's a Champions League Irish Times second captain's football podcast today. Ken Ernie. Oh, and how are you? Kieran Murphy. Hey there, Owen. Hey there, Kenny. Kieran, good to see you. And me, Owen McDevitt, are all here. Now, we might have jumped the gun a bit last week when we questioned the excitement levels at this stage of the tournament, the last 16 first leg, because, uh, well, it blew up this week. We don't, have to, we don't have to be too revisionist about it. I mean, last week wasn't amazing, but it did blow up. City-Barcelona was always likely to kickstart things. But, Ken, we couldn't have imagined that Arsenal's home tie against Monaco would throw up such delights. No, really not. I mean, this was a game which sort of everybody thought, well, good old Arsene Wenger. He's been plugging away so long now. Keeps getting drawn against Barcelona, Bayern Munich. Finally, he's <laughs> managed to, to draw the lucky golden ticket. And maybe he's going to get through to the quarterfinals this time. And, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a kind of coincidental bonus, he uh, is playing against his old club, his beloved Monaco. Uh, and the, in the days leading up to the game, there were feature pieces about, uh, you know, still Monaco's longest serving manager, you know, uh, did uh, great things there. But it was a lonely struggle against corruption and injustice uh, that eventually claimed his, uh, his managerial hide. Uh, he was up. He was ranged against dark forces: uh, Bernard Tapie, um, drug taking, uh, bribery, uh, and eventually he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't compete. But now he was going. He was going to go back at the head of this uh, <laughs> proud army of Arsenal, and um, you know the the two clubs that he's helped to make great, and and you know the one that he would currently he's currently managing arrive into the quarterfinals, and it doesn't look as though that's going to. If only the fixture had happened around. The turn of the century. If he had, if he actually had the much more army-like Arsenal team mm. of, of that stage, rather than the, uh, I, I just think you know, I think we all saw an Arsenal capitulation. We just kind of thought it'll happen in the quarterfinals this year, yeah. as opposed to because I mean we we are very much accustomed to watching Arsenal beat quite average teams like three 0 in the Emirates in the group stages of the Champions yeah. League, and we just thought that Monaco were exactly the sort of team that they would do that to. 
uh, before drawing someone decent and then... Well, Jamie Carragher summed it up. He tweeted, when Berbatov, yeah, says, when Berbatov says he wanted it more, you got problems. Yeah. Says Carragher. I mean... Ber- over over 3,000... Jamie Carragher had a big night on Twitter. Did he? He was flying. Yeah, over 3,000 retweets for that one. Then he followed up with, I feel, Wenger, uh, I feel, I feel for Wenger and Arsenal tonight. The only consolation is no stupid dressing room selfies. And then he later retweets a dressing room selfie of the Monaco team. Uh, please beat them, Gooners. Uh, apparently, Jamie Carragher, not a fan of those of those selfies. Uh, has he criticised them when, when Liverpool do those? I mean, they seem to... I mean, all, well, the teams, all the teams are doing that now. It's just, it was after Arsenal beat Man City, I think. On the, right. on the following day's Monday Night Football, he, he just totally went off on one about, what, what are you supposed to do with this photograph? Put it up on the mantelpiece, and then 20 years from now, your kid's going to ask you... What's this from? Oh, this is when we bet Man City 2-1 in January. <laughs> far, be, far be it from Premier League footballers to want to share a moment of happiness with their supporters. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. You know, You've got to maintain a respectful distance from those fans. You it, know, you're just a little too uh, hand in glove with them there. It is true that, uh, that back in Cargill's day, they didn't tend to put dressing room selfies on Twitter. But that's largely because Carragher's Day was before the era, mainly before the era of smartphones, 3G internet. What a quaint network. notion of, of, of Carragher's to think that in 10 or 20 years' time, people will be printing photographs. Yeah. And that's, uh, that Come alone on, Jimmy, is... Where, where are you been? <laughs> <laughs> Dion Fanning, Philippe Auclair and Jonathan Wilson are all on the show today to talk Champions League. I want to flag our second podcast out today too. Lots of good stuff coming up there. We're chatting to Kevin O'Brien after his latest Cricket World Cup heroics. We're talking Ireland-England in the rugby and a man I can't wait to meet. He was involved in some of the most brutal fights of the early part of this century. He's portrayed by Mark Wahlberg in The Fighter. Irish Mickey Ward is in Dublin and he's going to be in studio. So do get, have a listen to that if you get a chance later today. Time now for Ken Early's Report on Sport. So much in here, Ken. We have to talk Qatar as well, but maybe let's start, start with the Champions League. Oh, we'll definitely talk Qatar. Don't worry, Aaron. We'll get to that. But um, I guess we'll start with Arsenal, really. I mean... Arsene Wenger afterwards, just a face of misery. His whole sort of... I was looking at Wenger, um, some footage of him in his press conference, and looking so drawn and pale and weary and miserable. Um, how how profoundly he's aged. I mean, he has, he has actually got a lot older since he's been the Arsenal manager. It's been a long time. But to see that once smooth face... Just completely scrunched, wrinkled. Everything from sort of the nose level up is just now this massive wrinkles because of the way that he's been scrunching his face into this expression of agony uh, for so much of the last uh, uh, 10 years. And last night was really one of the worst uh, moments yet. I mean, an an unexpected and completely humiliating uh, defeat. The kind of uh, defeat where it's impossible to imagine what are these guys saying to each other in the dressing room. It's, it's impossible to imagine Arsene Wenger going in and saying anything other than just completely losing his head with the players after that. How, what can you say? How can you... How can I don't you think s- he does lose the head with the players. Oh, he, he does you, sometimes. Does he? Oh, he does sometimes. Uh, I know that for a fact that he has lost the head before with Olivier Giroud on one occasion after a particularly poor display of finishing. Now, it wasn't as bad a display of finishing as the one Giroud delivered last night Giroud was subbed off after his sixth miss of the night and they just, it was like they kept getting worse you know, they started off oh he's missed that one oh you know next one 
next one will be along in a minute. I always miss that one too. And at some point I was then thinking, hang on, wasn't I talking just recently about Olivier Giroud's lethality in yes. that near post zone? Yeah, it's one of your bugbears that he has that lethality. He, he looks like one of the world's great players in and around the, sort of from eight yards in, but any any further out, he he's lacks finally, any great he's talent. He's finally knocked that inconsistency out of his game book <laughs> out. So there is that at least. I just want to tack a rider onto that uh, Olivier <laughs> Giroud um, near post ninja thing. He The ball has to come to him on his left foot. He has to be able to get it on his left foot. It could be, you know, a, a Rabona type contact. He's capable of that. Mm. It could be, you know, he can flick or volley or hammer the ball with any part of his left foot, but the right foot is just like a spade. Or his head. Uh, He's a pretty good header of the ball. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say the head because in this precise near post situation I'm talking about is when the ball is cut back low from the byline and he'll he'll finish that one off. Now, this happened several times last night. He kept missing. But the ball kept coming to him on his right foot. It also came to him on his head uh, at one point, a chance which I would have expected him to score, and he ballooned it over. Uh, And finally, Wenger lost his patience when um, he had a chance when the ball kind of, the keeper spilled, it came back to him, and he just blazed it over from from about nine yards with his his right foot again. He He would maybe go, couldn't one of those chances have fallen to me on my left foot? But everybody else would say, you've got two feet, like you've got to be able to use both feet. I mean, highly paid. Come on, professional. You can't use that left foot, left foot, right foot excuse. Not that he actually has, but you know, I suppose it's something he, you know, sometimes it falls on your left foot, and sometimes you miss six uh, chances and they'll get one on target. I mean, so, so where, where do you start? I mean, obviously, it's always Arsene Wenger has, has done it again. The same thing has happened again. They're not out yet, but the statistics tell us there's about a 98.5% chance that they are out. Um, uh, so Wenger says afterwards, you know, we, it, it just wasn't right to give goals away the way we did. I mean, it's it's true. The goals that they gave away, um, the first goal was a bit unlucky in, in terms of the fact that it takes a deflection. But at the same time, maybe someone might try and and sort of meddle with the, the whole process of the guy winding up and, you know, this cannonball shot. You know, it's it's almost like it, he's got to load the ammunition, you know, it's, it's like firing the hole. Like a musket. You know? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> kind of like, if, instead of a, you know, sort of duel at dawn, you know, a quick, fastest on the draw, mm. the guy could basically lumber, he could wheel a cannon into the position that he... That's literally what happened. I mean... Literally. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you can have, say, I remember, say, Ronaldo in the 2002 World Cup uh, semifinal against Turkey scored a goal, which was a shot which was almost invisible to the naked eye. It was a toe poke shot, which nobody saw coming and ended up in the corner before anyone had time to react. Now, that was the opposite end of the extreme from the Kondogbia goal. Which was literally, you know, heave the piece of artillery into position. You know, you've got lads pushing Take a the, fag break. There's a guy with a big cotton bud who, who has to <laughs> ram it down the, the breach. And then everybody sort of holds their ears and, you know, bang, hits Mertesacker, goes in. Okay, someone should have tried to tried to do something. Okay, you, you, but, you know, everybody can concede a deflected goal. It, it does happen from time to time. Um, second goal. Uh, what was the second? Oh, the second goal, yeah. Second off, for some reason, Per Mertesacker decides to, to, you know, be, he positions himself on the right wing and then decides to try and cut out a ball to 70 yards of space behind him. But for some reason, he thinks it's really important. I've got to win this ball here. I'm going to stand and die here. Yeah, not a good man at covering <laughs> the space either, Per Mertesacker. Well, he, 
the question really should be, why is Werdesacker there? Why is he making the situation worse for himself, committing himself to just start start getting back, Werdesacker? Trust in your pacier teammates to try and nip in there and trust in it. But also you've got to try and start start getting back. You shouldn't be this far ahead and try and rectify that. He takes a step out of the game. There's then a pass which takes four more Arsenal players out of the game with one ball. Um, and you get a situation where Berbatov has got so much time, he's almost able to, to re- replicate the Kondogbia thing. I mean, the ball comes to Berbatov. He's able to control it. There's three Arsenal guys herring towards them on the left. But Berbatov knows that he's time to look up, look at the goalkeeper, Look think, at the part think, of the net where he's ab- going to put the ball. Yeah, think about how brilliant it is that he's going to score a goal against Arsenal in the championship. <laughs> you can actually see the moment. It's like, God, this is going to be great. And then just whacks it into the top corner. They've been building him all night. I mean, you know, you can almost forget that Berbatov used to play for Tottenham, but the Arsenal fans didn't. Um, and I'm sure he didn't either. Uh, <laughs> and again, it was one of those situations where the player getting booed, like Berbatov, he's going to touch the ball six times <laughs> you know it's like one of the most you know, you really have to be paying attention Constantly. to make sure that when he touches the ball one of the seven times in the game that you that you boom for that time and he I mean he touched the ball he, he had so much time again he didn't rush anything you know it was kind of in that situation the guy might have oh this guy's running at me but Brebatov knew Hang on, those guys are actually no I definitely have time just to take as much time as I need here Bang, that's 2-0. But the third goal was almost was was obviously the worst because you have this situation where Oxford Chamberlain is losing it, losing it, losing it, losing it. Oh, he's lost it. Oh no, what are we gonna do? You know, Monaco are baking now, but nobody has No, moved. there was no there was no there didn't seem to be any recognition among anyone on the Arsenal team. But everyone could see what that was that they'd lost they lost the ball and were potentially about to concede a goal. It didn't even really look like a chance because there were so many Arsenal players around and suddenly Space has opened up. Oxley Chamberlain has failed to follow his man back, and in the meantime, yeah, and he and really didn't didn't cover himself in glory after that. Murtasacker is just slow and didn't look particularly fit in that moment either. There is Rosicki standing yeah, in midfield. Nobody else is the, helping out. There. Uh, the goal scorer comes from a position much deeper than several Arsenal players, but because he moves and they don't, <laughs> yeah. he's suddenly out uh, on his own. And I have to say, I still was amazed that the ball went in. I mean, I remember I, my eyes bulged out of my head. I sat boulder I can't believe that's actually gone in. You know, this... I, I mean, the guy had actually had a similar chance a few minutes before where he should have crossed it. And this occasion, and he shot and it was weak. Uh, so I was... Absolutely not expecting him to score. It's a difficult chance. You know, from that position, the goalkeeper, you know, has the advantage, I think. It's gonna to have to be a good shot. Running at that kind of speed, well, it was a great shot. I mean the goalkeeper got a hand to it. I think maybe he he still should have saved it, but um you can't really blame the goalkeeper because there's so many other people there to be blamed. I mean everybody it's everybody needs to hang. So what can Arsene Wenger say when he goes back in there? You know, you're Giroud, you know, you call yourself a why do you shoot like a clown? I mean, I don't know if he says that kind of thing to Giroud, but that's the only thing that you could imagine would be in your head at that point. At that point, I mean, he comes and he has to do his press conference, and everybody's obviously looking at him, going, "Well, you know, the specialist in failure strikes again." You know, that's every, this is this unspoken stuff. I mean, a lot of these guys have been there for years, you know, going through the same process. You know, how long can this keep happening? Uh, on the second and third goals, it's suicide. We looked like we have lost our nerve and our rationality. Says Wenger, the heart took over the head. And at this level, that doesn't work. Mentally, we weren't sharp enough. Uh, we rushed our game. 
you know, the task is massive now. Uh, on Olivier Giroud, it looked like it was not one of his best days. <laughs> That's true. I mean, the, the counter-argument to it, though, is that at least... It's not a counter-argument I, I agree with. But at least he was getting in the right positions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe... Well, that is actually a counter-argument I agree with to a certain extent. This is Because... When you really have to worry about a strike, at this aspect, this is literally the most cliched thing ever is when they're not looking for chances. But you, you see it sometimes, and when it's highlighted, it looks so bad. I think it could have been Gary Neville or somebody did a piece on... It was Alan Shearer, a match of the day a few years back on Torres at Chelsea in one of his uh, early enough Chelsea games, and he just didn't look interested in particularly getting anywhere near the goal. So any chance you have, particularly if you're a Fernando Torres type or a Giroud type, who's not going to offer a huge amount around the field, Mm. what you want to do is actually be in there. So actually, there is a certain sense of sympathy for Giroud there. So do you you keep the faith with God? Do you say yes... Olivia, well, it depends on your it. options. I mean, you're in a situation where the, where at least two thirds of the stadium wants to kill Olivier Giroud, and the other the other third will be happy just with seeing him take it off. So, do you say no? I'm going to give you the this is a manager player thing. I'm going to keep transmitting my faith and belief to you. It depends Olivier on your Giroud. options. It depends who else you have. Yeah, I would have thought. Um, yeah, I think you just kind of have to ask him to just be a lot better. This and. If you're talking about, it's not particularly complicated what you're asking Olivier Giroud to do. Like the chances he had yesterday, we're not. You weren't asking him to beat two players and curl one into the top corner for twenty yards. No. It's actually show a bit of composure, do the thing that you train to do every day. I mean, whatever about transmitting faith to a player or hanging him out to dry, you have to you have to ask him and tell him to be better do, at yeah. the job that you're paying him to do he has to be better I mean at some point you have to call you have to cut your losses I suppose you know you could you could either say look I believe in you I mean I, you, you could tell that Giroud was getting flustered and sort of panicked you know and each time he missed it was becoming more of a thing but by the time the Sanchez shot rebounded to him and he blasted over the bar with yeah. the goalkeeper on the ground like in his you could see in his eyes he was please take please, me off please now please get me out of here get me the hell out of here start the car as uh, David Lloyd would say I mean, the player who, who they did bring on in the end was Walcott, who didn't have a tremendous impact, although he did, he did manage to create a quick chance. I mean, the, you know, we, we are going to talk again about this, and I, and I do feel that with Arsenal, it's mainly a, uh, a problem of their ethics, uh, you know, of their uh, willingness to support each other on the field. I th- honestly think that's their main problem, because they're not doing it. I mean, e- each of their goals, uh, you had cases of, of lots of players leaving the job to somebody else oh nobody's done the job we've all left that job to each other whether it be closing a guy down or whether it be reacting to Oxford Chamberlain being about to lose the ball everybody stands by and waits for someone else to do it it's you it's, know, it's no a basic saying, lack of professionalism really it's a, I, I would have it, thought the, it's, 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 it's pathetic but you know I mean if you were to look at it in a more in the sense of maybe I mean I'm talking about Mourinho again but uh, I mean, Mourinho. I don't know if you watched that. One. He did a he did a thing with Sports Illustrated recently, where he, where he had an interview with Grant Wall. I didn't see it. Um, Grant Wall did an interview with him. Uh, uh, you know, it was a typical kind of. You get a few minutes with Mourinho sitting there on the in the Chelsea dugout. He's not going to say anything particularly revelatory, you know. But uh, at one point, he he offers the view. He he said. 
he, he started giving a kind of a, a Shankly-esque, um, like, parable. You know, he's, and, and it, was, it was rubbish. It was absolute rubbish. He said, managing a player is like making a suit to measure. And he said this with a significant look at Grant Wall. And I wondered if someone at Chelsea's uh, press office has looked at that pre-World Cup Grant Wall's World Cup style article <laughs> in which he talked about his handmade handmade shoes and you know uh, his custom tailored jackets and all this kind mm. of stuff uh, and, and Mourinho's kind of tailored I suppose the metaphor to fit the audience I mean he didn't really he, he said he, he, I mean he, the reason I say it was a rubbish parable is that it didn't really go anywhere he just said it's like making a suit to measure. I can't just go into go in and say, "Oh, number two, I'll have a thirty-eight, a forty, two forty-twos, a forty-four." And I thought, "Well, yeah," and well, that was it. <laughs> but but I suppose if you were to so he's creating a sort of an army of footballers from scratch is basically what Mourinho has been handed large amounts of human flesh and tissue, <laughs> and he it's his job. To create these... To custom tailored So, players. I mean, the Chelsea team that we're seeing at the moment is actually just... They're just keeping the seat dry for Mourinho's army of tailor-made footballers. Both boys from Brazil, type thing. Mm. Uh, I think that what his metaphor means, if... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, maybe attributing more meaning to it than it deserves. But essentially, he's saying <laughs> you have to tailor the team to the occasion. Uh, you have to... You can't just sort of say, oh... I mean, okay, for instance... Arsenal's team last night featured Santi Cazorla in a kind of deep midfield role. Yep. Which is uh, a position uh, that he played in brilliantly against, say, Manchester City, right? Uh, and he was alongside Coquelin. Um But I don't think Santi Cazorla can play in a two-man midfield. Uh, he's, he's, not, he's not quick enough, he's not physical enough. He needs to be in a three-man midfield. You know, he can pass the ball around. He can make it work. He can manipulate the ball in there. Um, but if if you have him as just one of two, there's a big hole in the field there. When you don't have the ball, that's a hole. I suppose Arsene Wenger would say, but it was not a two-man midfield. We had a third member of that triangle just ahead of them. But who was the third member of the triangle? It was Mesut Ozil, right? Mesut Ozil. Now, Justin Mourinho had Mesut Ozil at Real Madrid for three seasons, was it three, two or uh, three seasons? Yeah, I think it was all, all three. He has lavished praise on Mesut Ozil as, as with few other players. The best number 10 in the world, all this kind of thing. Uh, sold, he was gone by the time Ozil was sold to Arsenal. But Arsenal obviously thought Ozil was, you know, agreed with Mourinho's uh, judgment on this player. Jose Mourinho never used Mesut Ozil in that position. He would only use him as a wide player. He would, you know, this Arsenal playing 4-2-3-1, Ozil would only, would only play for Mourinho as a left or right side. He would never, ever trust him as a third central midfielder because Ozil is not going to do that. He's just not going to do it. It's not in his nature. It's, a, I mean, it, you know, Mourinho knew this about him and still thought he was a great player. Uh, and you know, Ozil was really effective, set up lots of goals. You know, they did quite well together. But Mourinho was not going to ask him to do something he knew he wouldn't do. Whether he was not capable or he's not interested, he's just not going to do it. It doesn't really matter why. You just have to. Remember that he's not going to do it. And again, you know, to use him there as as Arsenal did last night just seems like a 
either you don't understand the player or you don't understand what's likely to happen in the game. It's it's uh, it's really leaving yourself open to, for problems. We're going to talk lots more Arsenal with uh, Philippe a little bit later on and Dion Fanning. Just to mention, Ken, that your use of the word literally earlier on yeah. it is legitimate now. Because uh, this came up uh, about a year or so ago on the on this podcast really? when I think I had used it and cursed myself for using the word literally incorrectly. But no, apparently back in 2011, the Oxford English Dictionary changed things, mixed things up a little bit. The dictionary states that literally means in a literal way or sense. Yeah. But it now adds that informally the word can be used for emphasis rather than being actually true, such as we were literally killing ourselves laughing. So essentially yeah. everybody got it wrong so often that eventually the... Boffins, the English language boffins of the Oxford Dictionary said, oh, listen, we'll just include it. Just Good. go with it. The word now has changed. I mean, it happens. Words change their meaning. Of course. So that's how language develops, I suppose. People just keep getting things wrong and then a new word exists or it's, is used in a certain way. It isn't. It doesn't happen very often that words change their meaning to mean the exact, exact opposite, opposite of what they in fact mean. I think that's, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the Oxford Dictionary have well, got this one look, wrong. I could, They've got it wrong. I could care less about your views I see what you're saying there what what is that change from I couldn't care less I could care less about what you have to say on that subject is that not just an Americanism I mean there are a lot of Americanisms that seem to just change the meanings of words we I mean could, like, you could care less we could go down disappear down this sort of <laughs> Bill Bryson rabbit hole or we could talk about Manchester City um, who, who again we'll talk good yeah we'll save this other stuff Ken for when there's a bit less Champions League to talk about that's what <laughs> yeah. you're saying um Okay, Man City, Man City lost and took a bit of criticism. I saw Roy Keane having a, having a go. He seemed to be the impression they lost 2-0, which would have been terrible. But they actually had only lost 2-1, which is still bad, but not as bad as 2-0. Um, uh, Paul Scholes criticised Vincent Kompany. Um, Barcelona's midfield players, they want someone to, to come and dive in. Kompany dived in. He got back, but isn't it clear where Suarez is? He hasn't protected the space. And then goes on to say he struggled the last few weeks. He struggled tonight as well. The company's in a kind of a dip in form. Company himself, um, not having any of that. He says, uh, it's simply when results go well, everyone will say I'm playing well. As long as the results don't go our way, people will say there are several players on the team not performing. All oh, this is part of the game. It doesn't bother me at all. Not one bit. <laughs> not one little bit. You're going in with an angle. For me, I cannot pay attention to it. It is what I've said. In the first half, we were disappointed. Then he he he, he mentions that they had a man sent off at a key moment of the game, which was very disappointing because they would have, well, maybe it looked like they were going to get back to 2-2. Um, I literally could care less about what you think of my performance recently, says Vincent Company. That's what he says. Um, although I get the impression he's a little bit he's a little bit stung by it, but he he started to talk about how the, before the game actually he was talking about how look we're going to get there in the end this Manchester City we're going to get there we've only been going and this is the same thing that that Gale, they must talk about this among themselves because Clichy comes and says the same thing after the game Clichy uh, says um, twice in a row we have to play Barcelona they're a big team and know how to play those kind of games I think eventually we will get there. Those clubs have been built for several years, 20, 30, 40 years. This is only the sixth season for us, but that's no excuse. We have to improve. So both of them are kind of, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land, but neither, I mean, I don't know how long these guys think their careers are going to actually last. I mean, I don't know if they're going to be able to get there to the promised land when Manchester City eventually do. At this, at the current rate of progress, inching their way forward round by round, year by year, they might 
be on schedule to win it around 2022. But there's not going to be any Vincent Company or Gail Clichy in those teams. I saw Joe Hart being asked about Company afterwards, uh, which was a strange one, I thought. It was quite, there was quite a, I don't know the name of the interviewer. Uh, what day was this? Tuesday night, so I would have been watching it on TV3. So uh, whatever interviews they have access to, uh, he was asked about, Joe Hart was asked about Vincent Company. He's, mm. been, he's been making some mistakes lately. Made another one tonight. Mm. Are you still behind your captain, yeah. <laughs> Joe Hart? Joe Hart do usually play in front of the goalie. So Yeah, Joe Hart says, uh, um, yeah, very much so. Vincent's the greatest player I've ever played with, almost, or certainly the greatest defender I've ever played with. It's funny, it's funny that it's gotten to the stage now that people are asked that, Player, other Man City players are being asked about mistakes being made by a specific player. Yeah, it's a, a kind of a rarity, but it seems to be happening now. We'll, we'll move it on because we're going to talk about City later too. Nobody, uh, yeah. The, I mean, Hart's eyes just glazed over at that point. He's one of the best players I've ever played with. I mean, Hart did a famously awkward interview um, if, uh, last year with Polly Vernon from the Times. Right. Um, this was just before England went to the World Cup, and you know, this is the usual. World Cup magazines and all this kind of stuff and it was for one of these things um, it kind of went off the rails when she asked him about what it's like to get paid so much um, did you always want to be rich she asked him <laughs> is it a question designed to you know you've, the fragile trust that you've managed to build up with this football player after a couple of minutes sitting there the, the way that they were sitting was it's her and him there but there's also his two agents there's two of his agents there, one of whom looks totally bored by everything, one of whom seems to be listening intently to everything. So which one is freaking you out more? I'm not sure. Um, did you always want to be rich? Rich? That never really came into it, says Joe Hart. Footballers are paid a lot of money, though, she says. Not all of them. Uh, are you? He says, I get exactly what I need. Do you get what you deserve, though? <laughs> she presses. I don't know what I deserve. I get, you know what the club values me at. Do you enjoy spending the money? <laughs> she says. That's kind of a weird... Um, well then, do you like buying things? Uh, buying things? That's a ridiculous way to describe it. I get what I can get. But I wouldn't say I get great pleasure in passing money over. No. And she just says, a fraudure descends. <laughs> From that point on, Joe Hart literally says... I mean, says absolutely one of those situations where... You, every the two, the interviewer and the interviewee both know the answer to all of those questions. Yeah. But for some reason, Joe Hart feels like he can't say yes. I earn a lot of money. You know that's fine. <laughs> you know. I mean, I think if if he's a bit more upfront about it, there, sure, there's I nothing earn, to be ashamed of. Money. of you know? He said, "I I try questions so anodyne. I can't imagine they'd offend or alarm anyone." Uh, how much do you sleep? How much do you switch off? But to no avail. Hart switches off like everyone else. And he seems by turns confused, alarmed, furious, bored, or contemptuous of every word I utter. Uh, I asked him how accurate he thinks is the stereotypical view of a Premier League footballer. He says, I can't generalize. I see them as human beings. That's like me asking what journalists are like. I can tell you what journalists are like, I say. Go on then. I think we're curious people as a professional breed. We're interested in other people and in life in general. We're good at drinking. We are, by and large, good company. All of them, yeah. That is a good answer from Joe Hart. Yes. Well, the way you analyze it, I couldn't do that. (laughs) So so, yeah, he's got form, and in that, you know, you were being asked to criticize Vince Company. Not going to happen. I've been waiting for this. Can I talk Christmas World Cup? What are your plans for December 2022? 
Uh, well, have you booked your flights? It's a long way away. It's seven. Those, those flights home are going to shoot up on Christmas Eve. Yeah, so this is this is apparently the plan. Um, it's obviously going to be in November, December World Cup. This is what FIFA is saying now. I mean, FIFA just uh, just announced these things, and the rest of the world just likes. It. I mean, did you see a couple of weeks ago? FIFA just announced that they had given Fox and NBC's um, yeah. Really weird. <laughs> Say it. The, um, the Portes, I can't remember the, is it Univision? I can't remember the name, Spanish language channel. Uh, the United States rights for the 2026 World Cup. It's just given it to them. Well, not given it to them. They've obviously been paid. But they hadn't opened it up for bidding, which is usually what happens. ESPN immediately are sending out press releases saying, uh, FIFA might have mentioned that this was going to happen. You know, FIFA might have said, we're going to have, we're, the rights are up, you know, maybe you'd like to put in a bid. We are, after all, a former partner. I mean, that ESPN were doing the last World Cup. You know, Fox are taking it over now. But obviously FIFA just said, Fox, you know, you, you guys are going are gonna to get it. Now, I don't know why they would do that. I mean, it seems to me to be uh, reducing the amount of money that they could make. I mean, it's obviously better if you have different companies bidding for the rights. So what are FIFA getting in exchange for that in lieu of the money that they might have been expected from an auction situation. They've sacrificed revenue for what reason? Why would they give it to Fox? Just I don't know. Is there an answer to this? Are we? Uh, I don't. Is know. there a really obvious answer that legally we're not allowed to say here that I just am thinking in my own head? Well, I, I don't know, but I mean, you, you obviously think. Well, why would FIFA cut off their nose to spite their face? You know, what's the what's the what's the point? Um, what is the point? We don't know, Ken. Uh, were ESPN particularly harshly critical of what's this all got the to do with, Cup? with, with the I don't know. Okay. Cup. It was just the, the way that FIFA just sort of say, "Well, this is what's going. This is what's going to happen," you know, and <laughs> like it or dump it, uh, and everyone just has, has, has to go along with it. Um, now, there's a, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. I mean, number one is like, uh, mm, this is terrible. FIFA have uh, obviously, first of all, given the World Cup to a country which lied about the conditions under which it was going to host the World Cup. Uh, the the bid that they bid that they put forward was actually impossible. You know, the, the FIFA's own technical report said this is this impossible bid. But, you know, essentially under the false pretense that the World Cup was going to be on in June and July, they have been awarded a World Cup, which is now going to be held in November, December, which has never, never happened before. It's not to say it could never happen. But, you know, it's just... Uh, I mean, the, when you look around the world, okay, there's lots of leagues that actually play... This is the break. This is the break time for those leagues. Um, the League of Ireland. Uh, Major League Soccer. Well, Major League, Major League Soccer kind of pushes it. You know, Russia. You know, there's, there's plenty of leagues around the world, possibly more leagues than there are on, in the kind of traditional European winter type season. The thing is, most of the World Cup players do play in those European leagues. Maybe it would be different in seven years. I mean, who knows? You know, who knows how, how the sort of global economy will have affected where people... Maybe everyone would be playing in the United States. <laughs> I mean, it seems it seems far fetched for that to have happened in seven years. At the at the moment, the disruption will be to the leagues where most of the World Cup players actually come from. Uh, they're obviously not happy about it, and they're saying, "Well, we want to be compensated. You know, we're going to have to be uh, going to have to change all our schedules. You know, say the Christmas schedule, for instance, in England. I mean, this is just one example. It's not as though the Christmas schedule in England is the most important, you know, sacred cow of world football that can never be. But you know, as an example." Um, 
that's a, a really big, it's, it's, you know, it's a big revenue sort of time of the year for all of the clubs, which you can't really replicate at other times of the year. Apparently that now has to, it's, you know, people don't have holidays all at the same time. You know what I mean? You, so that has to be kind of changed. Should they not be compensated mm. for the fact that there's essentially been a stitch up? I mean, the, do FIFA not have to recognize that there has that, that there, this has been a stitch up? Uh, what Jerome Valk uh, says, um, he says, it's not perfect. We know that. But why are we talking about compensation? It's happening once. We're not destroying football. Why should we apologize to the clubs? We've had an agreement with the clubs. They're part of the beneficiaries. It was $40 million in 2010, $70 million in 2014. This is like um, money that the clubs get in return for the use of their players. During the week. We're bringing all our people to enjoy the sporting and financial results of the World Cup. I definitely don't feel I have to apologize for the decision made yesterday to confirm the World Cup will not be played. Well, they summer. say it's happening once, but it's not. You're, you can't just change one season that, without having knock-on effects. No, on it's a precedent. A, at least a couple of seasons, uh, one season either side of that. And realistically, you might have to change things entirely. Uh, now, whether or not... It, I, have, I have read a few pieces, and quite a lot of people are making this point, that this is the one thing that will really have, say, the Premier League up in arms and other leagues around the world and possibly some associations, rather than the deaths of all the migrant workers, the general treatment of a lot of those workers in Qatar, the various allegations of corruption around it. The, the, on the face of it, the more... Uh, the issues with, with a much deeper meaning than this one, but this is the one that's going to actually exercise people's passions more. Yeah, well, I mean, you could say it's the one that that uh, that directly involves them, um, that, that that directly sort of interferes with their own interests. Whereas, you know, the issue of migrant workers, for instance, I mean, the statistics on that are actually are really shocking. I mean, if you look at it, I and mean, I saw a recent comparison of um, you know construction deaths related to. Um, uh, recent sporting events, and you know, it went sort of went back ten years or so, and it included, say, Sochi, the Winter Olympics, you know, the London Olympics, the Brazil World Cup, the South African World Cup, and what you have is, you know, all of essentially the graph looked like a bunch of um, little bungalows uh, next to a skyscraper. You know what I mean? Like this, you know, there's there's uh, this huge number of deaths. I mean, and there are seven years to go before the. Seven years. So I mean, it's you know, on current trends, it looks like you know quite a quite a high total of deaths. I mean, a little high. I mean, uh, on the other hand, if this is the kind of, I mean, uh, I suppose the idea is, well, this is a big construction project. Um, Is this the way that things are done? I mean, you know, there's a lot of there's, there's. It's kind of hard to know where to start, really, with all the reasons why you shouldn't have a World Cup in. In Qatar, this is one that isn't really related to football so much as the nature of the economy of Qatar. You know what I mean? the The problem with the winter scheduling is obviously a far less significant problem than the issue of, of migrant worker deaths. But it is the one that's more directly related to football, which is why maybe you get to see uh, you see people in football sort of appearing to care more about this. Well, I say appearing to, you know, but it is the one that does impinge directly on their affairs, whereas the other one maybe is a reflection of general economic conditions. Is it completely ridiculous to host the World Cup in December with the final, uh, November, December with the final on the 23rd? Um, Does everyone just have to suck it up? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Yeah, like the the idea of it is that if Qatar, if Qatar's World Cup bid had included a World Cup final on December the 23rd, at least we'd have thought that, <laughs> that at least it, it wouldn't be massively insulting to our intelligence that 
the the whole bidding process. But now it just it, yeah, it, they sold us one thing, they bought one thing, mm. and now it's a totally oh, it's just different turned thing. into a totally different thing. Yeah, and now you just have to uh, go with that as well. That. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that everybody thinks they know why it is that FIFA has decided to ram through this uh, quite awkward um, proposal. You know, fuck it. I don't think I need to apologize. You know, it sounds like you you got something on your mind. It's not like we're destroying football, says well. You know. <laughs> It's not it like we're defensive. destroying yeah. a little bit. You know what I mean? You know that this isn't isn't really great. But everybody's got their own... Well, and everybody thinks they know, know why Qatar has it. Yeah, and at the end of the day, if you're talking about the Qatar World Cup, you're probably not talking about the, the Russian, Russian World, World Cup. Cup. So FIFA, there's always an upside with That's FIFA. The yeah, end. the Russian Russian's pretty happy, I think, uh, about that, generally. I, I sometimes wonder if this is actually all just a big Russian scheme. <laughs> <laughs> just a big diversionary scheme. To somehow that... FSB is feeding this Qatar stuff into the international media uh, in an effort to uh, distract attention from the other thing. That's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. We'll get into Arsenal-Monaco in a little while. Right now, Jonathan Wilson joins us to talk about Barcelona's massive performance against Manchester City. Jonathan, Barcelona, I have seen quite a few people saying that they didn't actually have to play especially well in the first half and that City made it so easy for them. I'm not not sure about that. Do you agree? Well, up to a point, I think probably I do. I mean, I think they did play well, but um, but the way City set up, I I think, allowed them to play well. uh, And... Yeah, you know, I, I think there's still that sort of muscle memory there in Barcelona. Once they get in there, they're, they're very hard to shake out of it. And there was a period towards the end of the first half, so the last twenty twenty five minutes of the half, when it was like watching the you know the great Barcelona of, of four or five years ago, that every pass was was going exactly where it needed to, and City just couldn't respond uh, quickly enough. I mean, everybody after the game, or even actually before the game, to be fair, um, I saw, for instance, Carlos Camendieta and Kevin Kilban on Irish television. Clutching their heads, saying, "What are Manchester City doing? Why are they playing four four two against Barcelona?" I mean, it's almost a reflex, um, especially in, in hindsight, to say, "Well, you know, you went four four two against a team like that. Uh, you're obviously going to be asking for trouble." But Manuel Pellegrini is a, a senior football man, Jonathan. Um, he must have had some kind of a good reason for doing what he did. I mean, it's, it's not just complete madness, is it? No, I don't think it is. I mean, I think there's, there's two issues. Um, the first. Um, which I'm not 100% convinced by, but I do wonder whether it, was a, it played on his mind a little bit that he got so criticised last season for having been um, so defensive in, in that home leg. And I actually thought last season they, they played pretty well in the home leg. And then it was a slightly freakish. And the first goal where uh, De Michaelis was sent off for, for uh, conceding the penalty... It came from a slightly freakish ricochet that uh, I think it was Jesus Navas lost the ball, so 10, 15 yards inside the Barcelona half. And the, the way the ball fell was perfect for Barcelona to break. De Michaelis panicked, and that led to, 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 the, um, to, to Barca's victory. And so I, I thought last year the game plan, yeah, maybe it was a little bit cautious, but actually it, it was working. This time, I, th- I think everybody's reaction in the press box when the team sheets came out was, you know, Christ, he's, he's really attacking here. Now, up to a point, you can sort of see what he was thinking—that um, 
Barcelona have been on that run of what was it, twelve wins in a row before the defeat to Malaga. I think there is a sense that they, they they're not that great defensively. That maybe they're they're there for the taking. That if you if you do get after them, they they um you know, they they are vulnerable at the back, and 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 maybe you've got to try and play the game where they don't want it to be played. So in, in that sense, playing two up front, making Piquet and Mascherano both defend, making them both mark a man rather than covering, I can sort of see the logic of that. The problem I thought was the midfield. That um, Milner and Fernando, I mean, I remain to be convinced by Fernando as a player anyway, but quite apart from that, they've never played together as a pair. So that, I think, was a slightly strange choice given the the difficulty that the centre midfield was always, always going to have in that game. It may, maybe it was forced on him by form and injuries, but it, it, it still it was something that, 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 that leapt out when you saw the team sheet. And then also on the flanks with Nasri on one side and David Silva on the other, you know they're going to play narrow. And all that does is invite the Barcelona fullbacks to get forward, which is of course, exactly where the second goal came from. And you contrast that to last year, when he had Kolarov playing in front of Gael Clichy, playing two left-backs to try and block in Dani Alves. And here you're basically playing with nobody on the left side of midfield, just inviting Dani Alves forward. So uh, I, I think everybody knew it was a gamble. And I think it pretty quickly became apparent that it, it, it wasn't going to pay off. Yeah, and you've outlined the tactical reason why it didn't pay off, but is there a psychological one as well? If you're if if the idea is, right, we're going to go out and we're going to outplay Barcelona, we're going to take them on almost, if not at their own game, we're certainly going to take them on in a footballing sense, you need to be really bullish about that and have an incredible self-confidence to do it. And has this game highlighted that City still don't have that confidence in Europe? For whatever reason, they still don't seem to to feel like they belong against these teams. Well, perhaps there's an element of that. I mean, I think that began to change towards the end of the group stage when they, I mean, the, a, a slightly freakish victory over, over Bayern Munich when it was, you know, Aguero's brilliant finishing in the last five minutes. But certainly the Roma game, I think, um, gave them confidence. Uh, but I actually, I thought City, I thought they actually played all right for the first quarter of an hour or so. And then, you know, they, they allowed the cross to come in. They, it, it, it's, I don't know what company was doing. Um, I mean, it just seemed... Uh, uh, a lack of decisiveness on his part that it, it wasn't really a, um, a, a sort of definitive attempt to head the ball away. He sort of got in the way of it, and the ball dropped, and then Suarez with a with a great finish. But up until that moment, I mean, it was only a quarter of an hour. But it, in that sense, it was not dissimilar to last year. That until they went behind, City actually looked okay. Uh, but then having gone behind, panic set in. But then you know, it's, it, I think it's it's telling that as soon as Fernandinho came on in the second half, and they went to, to three sort of deep lying central midfielders. And a four-three-one-two. That was when City got back into the game. That um, maybe if it hadn't been the, the, the red card, they, they, they might have nicked an equaliser. That they, they suddenly had that surge of sort of ten minutes or so when a, a comeback became possible, which towards the end of the first half it, it looked you know, a, an impossible prospect. So I, I think you just got to look at the of a, a tactical uh, the, the shape of the midfield and, and say that. You can understand the gamble, but it went pretty badly wrong pretty pretty quickly. I guess this was your, probably your first time, Jonathan, seeing this uh, world-class Barcelona front line um, in the flesh. Uh, have you seen any evidence that these three players can become more than the sum of their parts together? Well, maybe not more than the sum of their parts, because their parts are such an enormous sum. But there's certainly signs of um, them being able to work work together. I mean, Messi, I thought, was, was excellent in the first half despite essentially playing on the right and drifting in, that he, he now seems to have accepted, or he seems seems capable of, of, of not necessarily playing in the middle. Um, Neymar, I think that's that's the best I've ever seen him play, actually, in, in, in the flesh. 
and I include sing and play quite a lot for Brazil, both in the World Cup and the and the Cup America. Uh, I, I thought, yeah, finally I could really see what it, what people have been saying about Neymar. He looked a, a really top class player, and Suarez, although he you know, he missed a couple of early chances, you know, he he took his two goals brilliantly. Although there's something slightly strange about Suarez that you compare this Suarez to the Suarez of, of Liverpool, when he you know, he dominated the team and and. Any time the ball wasn't passed to me, berate whoever it was who hadn't given him the ball. And here he seems incredibly deferential. Oh, I'm really sorry I missed that chance. So, yeah, I'm sorry my run wasn't quite right. So I'm not sure he quite feels at home yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his, just his... Um, yeah, he, there's something quite nice about Messi and Neymar, where there's, there's obviously that... Uh, the, you know, the, the, the Gara, the great thing they talk about in Uruguay, the... the the, the, the cunning and the streetwiseness that, that Suarez brings them. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say, I mean, with players of that quality, you can imagine Barcelona having at least a, you know, a puncher's chance against any team in the Champions League. Um, I mean, what did, you, what did you think of their weakness? The City did come back at them strongly in the second half and managed to get a goal. Um, do they look to you like the kind of team that can actually win this competition? Can they beat um, so, you know, a team like Bayern who maybe have a, have a superior team structure just because of the quality of their players? They, they can do, yeah. I mean, I'd still fancy Bayern over them fairly significantly, but you're absolutely right. If you've got that front three, if you can set up your back seven to defend, which they probably can't, but if you could, then they, they, they are going to have a, have a great chance against anybody. Um, I, I, mean, I, I think the fullbacks are... Are, are intriguing in that neither Dani Alves nor Jordi Alba can, are, are good defensive fullbacks. They're both used to getting forward, and in the Spanish league, that, that, that is what they have to do in you know ninety percent of the games. Uh, so that I think will always be be an issue for them. Um, but but um, I don't really worry about the you know, the, the centre of defence. I think in in the air they they're not great. Neither Pekin nor Mascherano is really dominant in the air, so you can maybe get after them there. Set plays, you think they they, they might concede. So I mean, they they certainly are vulnerable at the back. But yeah, if you've got a forward line that good, then then you always have a chance. It it obviously ended up being a week where everybody um, was saying the greatest league in the world. The slogan which the Premier League I think stopped using about itself many years ago. <laughs> um, but you know, people mocking the fact that oh, the richer the Premier League gets, the worse it gets. Because look at Manchester City losing at home, and look at Arsenal losing at home to Monaco. You were at this game as well, John. We're going to be talking about it in a bit more detail shortly. But I mean, is this the worst yet? Do you think? I mean, it's it's admittedly it seems to be the same as all the all the last few seasons. But was there something a little bit different about what happened to Arsenal last night? Yeah, I think there was purely because of who they were playing. That um, I mean, Monaco played well, but they they didn't do anything extraordinary. They they set up with. Uh, yeah, three screening midfielders in front of the back four. Pretty, you know, uh, predictable defensive tactics. You know, we knew they were good at the back. They only let in two goals in the previous twelve games. They didn't have to do anything extraordinary to, to win that game. Yeah, it's two very good finishes, um, the, the second and third goals. But that, you know that happens, and it particularly happens if you let a team just run seventy yards straight through you. I thought Arsenal were were just appallingly naive. Um, it was interesting. Wenger didn't use the word naive when he was speaking English, but he used it when he was speaking French in the press conference. He's, he's, in English, he said suicidal. But I mean, either are true. They, they, I mean, he's got to take some of the blame as well. That if you play uh, two, you know, four-two-three-one, if you play two holders and one of them sat in Cazorla, although Cazorla actually played pretty well last night, he's just not going to give you that cover. And you think back to say the City game when Cazorla was was superb and sort of all-round capacity. 
that was in the 4-3-3. So I, I think the way Arsenal sort of dominated the first 20 minutes, they, they almost got in the mindset of, well, Monaco aren't going to pose a threat. We've just got to get men forward. And then they were incredibly lax defensively. You know, I mean, well, the, the first goal when Welbeck loses the ball, nobody gets across to cover. And Cazorla in the end has to, has to charge across to try and close down Michinho. And, and the ball slipped inside. And, and it looks like it's Cazorla's fault. But he's, he's covering for uh, Cochrane not being in the right place. And he's not in the right place because something's gone wrong out on the left. And, and then the, you know, the two goals on the break just to... To get the forwards, the fullback sucked that far forward, uh, particularly the third goal, that stage of the game. Um, I mean, you know, said that third goal, it was, it was a heart ruling in the head, that they, they were chasing the equaliser. And then maybe it was, but, you know, it's not like they haven't played in the Champions League before. This is what, their 15th successive season? 16th, but it looked yeah. like a team who'd never played in a, in a two legged tie before. Okay, Jonathan, that's great. Thanks for being. Cheers, thanks. Interested that Jonathan. This was the game that has finally convinced Jonathan Wilson that Neymar is what he has been cracked up to be. There was an interesting vine that went around, into, uh, more than a vine, an interesting minute-long clip or so of Neymar involved in an altercation with a supporter at the final whistle. Yeah. Um, I mean, the supporter was just acting like an ape, you know. And um, and Neymar... It was around the time of Messi's, Messi missing the penalty, you know. Neymar had been subbed off at this stage, so he's sitting there, yeah. Sitting there in the bench. And this, this Man City supporter is kind of, like, uh, capering about and sort of trying to insult Neymar. Neymar, he kind of catches Neymar's eye, and then Neymar stares over at him. Um, uh, and then it seems, after the final whistle, having given him this sort of death stare for a bit, Neymar's death stare is not that scary at all. You know? He gave the death stare followed by the, come on over here and say that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why don't you come over here to the bench here where I'm sitting, which he can't get to because of the stewards and raining. Um, but then he he seemed to kind of go back and have a, have another go with the supporter. Supporter has, uh, I mean, Neymar said, oh, my mother educated me. You know, what my mother gave me, his mother didn't give him. Uh, and he's talking about education there. Uh, Neymar, but the supporter has had a pop back. <laughs> On Instagram, I hope. He came over and put his face right in my face. I didn't know whether he was going to push me or what he was going to do. He was saying something to me in either Portuguese or Spanish. I couldn't understand. I kept doing the diving gesture to annoy him. Then the stewards pulled me away and he went down the tunnel. Throughout football, he's known for being a diver. Half of the stadium were doing the same thing. That's normal. If you're a professional, you expect to be goaded by the home fans. <laughs> That's football. He singled me out because I was stood up. He was very unprofessional. So I think lectured on professionalism. <laughs> I, love, I love when these guys start moralizing. I want to make clear I did nothing wrong. It wasn't a serious incident. But I hope he wouldn't react like that again, says the supporter. <laughs> I've complained to the Manchester police about Neymar's behaviour. <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully the justice will be, will be done. Well, the this, point that this, this supporter makes is, is actually a valid point. Everyone knows that a, a player does get abused and shouldn't be going in starting fights with guys. But just the fact that he's making it <laughs> yeah. uh, sits a little bit uneasily. I did think, by the way, that Barcelona played in the first half some of the best football I've seen yeah in a I don't think it was, I know it was made easy for them by City but I, I'm not sure I, I think City was just blown. it wasn't unlike Ireland against Spain in Euro 2012 it really and was. you're talking about Man City here whatever about Ireland underperforming that day it, it was always quite likely we'd be outgunned massively by Spain but for City to be on the receiving end of something like that and again very similar two midfielders wasn't it Glenn Whelan or was it Andrews after that game came out and said look I don't know what you expect us to do yeah. uh, when we've got two midfielders and every other t- player, every other team in the tournament has three yeah. uh, I think Milner might know how he feels after after the game Dion Fanning and Philippe Auclair were at the Emirates last night Dion just we might start at the end of the night absolutely extraordinary stuff and I'm almost laughing here uh, uh, apologies to Arsenal fans for that but it's hard not to just so many um, so many nights like this 
focus now for Arsenal. Arsene Wenger in his press conference, did he find a new way in any way to explain the same thing? Um, not really, except you know, he did look, he looked so, so downcast and uh, as you would expect him to after, after a night like that. And you know, looking at, at the players, you know, uh, failure, you know, the nerves, nerves let them down. You know, talked about the, the suicidal defending, um, and yet again, when Wenger talks about these things, you do always feel that the, the the point is being is being missed. That Arsenal again are undone by by teams who always who have the one thing that they don't have, which is a kind of a rigid tactical plan, and that's what what Monaco had last night and. Uh, and it was it was sort of instructive to see how they they unfurled it during the course of the evening when they you know defended well and then you know uh, gradually came came out and and came at Arsenal and Arsenal this seemed to take Arsenal completely by surprise. Philippe, you're you're a stalwart of the Emirates. You've seen a lot of these Arsenal um, Champions League disappointments. I mean, watching on TV last night, it sounded like the last uh, few minutes. Uh, notwithstanding the the brief uh, apparent redemption from from the Oxford Chamberlain goal, it sounded like a hostile atmosphere there. It didn't. It sounded like an unhappy place. It was an unhappy place, and and rightly so, um, because I mean we were under the illusion for about fifteen minutes that uh, Arsenal meant business. Then we realised that they suddenly went to this torpor. There's no other word for it, and. Uh, completely fell in the trap that had been laid by Leonardo Jardim, who is a very, very fine manager. Let's not mistake that. But the, the complete lack of reaction um, of the team in the second half, the time, at times, actually, um, Monaco, who are not reputed in France, believe me, for playing the best football or the most, the silkiest or easiest on the eye of footballs, were putting together moves which, honestly, uh, you would have expected from Arsenal themselves. Um, and this uh, with a team that was lacking five members of its starting eleven, it was humiliating. There's no other word for it. Um, tactically, it was inane, and you've got to question the manager for that. Uh, physically, they dropped as well as Jardim had thought they would. It's, it's something that he had noticed, and he talked to us about it after the game and said that Arsenal give you so much space to exploit when they tire, and it's exactly what they did. And then the uh, comical <laughs> um, nature of um, Ferreira Carrasco's goal, judicially taken as it was, just seemed to encapsulate this whole second half, which honestly, I think, must rank as the worst that I've ever seen Arsenal play in Europe together with perhaps the performance at San Siro against Milan, 4-0, and the last few minutes of the game against Anderlecht, which was far worse than the game, the game against Anderlecht. It was absolutely shocking. Why is it so bad, though? I mean, what... what... I mean, that's a that's a big claim. Arsenal played a lot of Champions League games. Why was this the worst? Well, they play a lot of games, but they don't lose an awful lot of them. Um, sometimes they're, you know, for example, if you take the, the, the footballing lesson they got from Bayern Munich last season at the Emirates, well, okay, you can accept that. You're talking about one of the great teams of Europe and possibly one of the greatest Bayern fans of all time. Um, no, it's the manner of... Uh, uh, which is so shocking. You have to remember, you're, talk, you're playing against a team that is fourth in the French League, has been struggling, has lost its star players, is playing without what I would say has probably been their best player since the beginning of the season, Jeremy Toulalon, who is playing without the two central defenders, Ricardo Cavallo and Raji, who has an 18-year-old at, at right-back who's only played one French Cup game so far, who's deploying Fabinho in central midfield when he's a right-back. 
who is playing without Kurzawa and Ferreira Carrasco, at least from the start, who are the most, with the, you know, the most potent players going forward. And talking to my French colleagues before the game, we were all of the opinion that should Arsenal score relatively quickly, this could be a very embarrassing night for Monaco football, uh, for ASM. In which, um, uh, and, and it was exactly the opposite, it was one of the great nights of Monaco and one of the great European nights for French football of recent years. Uh, but the manner, I mean, the, 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 it, it was this supine uh, capitulation of Arsenal, the arrogance of their play after the first 15 minutes, the slowness of thought and execution, uh, and then the recklessness of, of what they did in the second half in particular. Honestly, when, when Oxley Chamberlain's goal went in, I thought 2-1, they'll do the job that we do. Because Arsenal is a team which is totally capable of scoring two or three away from home. And the stupidity of the, the way they concede the third goal is, is extraordinary. But you have, again, you know, the team were, were awful. Um, Olivier Giroud had the worst, his worst night uh, ever. Uh, but you've got to question the way the manager prepared his team, because it's all very well to say that the players were not, were not mentally prepared. But, you know, surely it is also the manager's job to do that. Yeah, Dion, just on, on Philippe's point there about what Arsenal should have done and didn't do when they got back to 2-1. It was interesting, there was a bit of a debate between uh, Didi Haman and John Giles last night on RTE about this. Didi felt, like Philippe did, that there's no need to panic at 2-1. You, you just take that, go away from home to Monaco uh, and work your way back into the tie from there. Giles thought quite differently. He said if he was on the field, he would have been going for a second goal. But it strikes me that it's not really about the mindset there of whether you go for uh, an equaliser or you don't, it's more how you react to what's going on in the field. I mean, uh, Oxlade-Chamberlain struggled for about three or four seconds to regain possession as he, as it was bouncing around. From that point on, <laughs> nobody seemed anywhere within 50 it yards was obvious to, that to Ox- give him a hand. He, yeah. he, was in, he was in trouble. I mean, Oxlade-Chamberlain was in trouble. He's going to lose the ball. Everyone on the field can see, at least there's a good chance he's going to lose the ball and this is going to be a dangerous situation. And if you look at all the other Arsenal players... And I don't mean, I think, the one player who was kind of standing behind Oxford Chamber. There was a couple of players sort of across the field who just stand and watch. They make no reaction. It's as though they're, they're not involved in the game. Nobody's reacting to the danger. There's no sense of um, collective responsibility or mutual self-sacrifice. It's astonishing to see that at, at, at that level of the game. Well, Wenger talked afterwards about Arsenal forgetting their elementary cautiousness. And when you heard that, it was kind of tempting to think, what elementary cautiousness? Because mm-hmm. it's not something you would, would associate with Arsenal. And I, I agree, like last night was astonishing. Like at, in that moment, that moment only encapsulated what had gone on in the second half, where you, you were looking at this team that didn't seem that, that concerned by things. And, you know, the, the goal gave them a bit of urgency. But <laughs> the reaction when Oxley chamberlain lost the ball was in keeping with everything that had, had gone before and I think I think that has you know you, you can react to things on the night but I think again that that comes from a team knowing what they're going to do in certain situations what they're going and like the, the, the first half performance was, was was indicative of that in another way because you know Arsenal didn't have a shot on target in the first half which is actually not a bad thing in some ways you know a nil nil at home in a Champions League tie wouldn't be the worst thing at all but they weren't set up for a team to you know for a nil nil, they were set up uh, you know as they uh, as Philippe said the first fifteen minutes you know and, and they went at, went at, at Monaco but then when when that faded away there was nothing there wasn't a, de- a defensive plan to say right we we'll, we we'll, we won't concede there was just we'll, we're going to pass it you know back and forth in front of their defence 
And when they break, and you know, Matinho was the dominant figure on the night, when they break and they go through our, our Arsenal's non-existent midfield, there'll be nothing we can do to stop them. Jose Mourinho, when he was on goals on Sunday the other day, um, was asked about Arsenal, and he suggested that uh, he was astonished that they that they weren't right up there with Chelsea battling it out because he was so impressed by the quality of uh, the players in their squad. Uh, and, and we all understand what his motivation was in, in saying this about Arsenal. It, I mean, I, I, having watched the game like last night, is that a credible point of view? Is a player like Mesut Ozil really... Uh, you know, does he does he deserve the status that comes with the transfer fee that, that brought him to Arsenal? Uh, is Olivier Giroud uh, really a, a, the, the you know the caliber of centre forward that's going to get you into the latter stages of the Champions League? I mean, his misses last night, you know, one miss, two miss, three misses. We've all seen it happen, but you know, a, a really top quality centre forward, you know, a, a, a Huntelaar or a or a Luis Suarez or a Bas Dost is not going to miss six chances and not get a single one of them on target. I mean, Arsenal's players aren't good enough, Dion. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think at the at the highest level, at the most important matches, they don't have players who you think are going to are going to get a goal. Uh Giroud obviously demonstrated that last night. You know, Danny Welbeck is an impressive player, but he's not you know, I don't think he's scored since he came back from injury and he hadn't scored much, you know, before injury. Like he, he scores a kind of goal every four or five games, uh, uh, except for you know, a hat-trick early in the Champions League. But apart from that, it's, 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 it's a goal every four or five games. But they don't have the players you think. Uh, you know, Sanchez has been the, been the obvious exception, um, who, 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 who will score, who will kind of make, make the difference, as, you know, as Suarez did at, at the Etihad on Tuesday night. Um, now, obviously, Barcelona's dominance was, was something else, but they have somebody there who is so alive to the possibilities. And, you know, you look at Giroud in, in similar situations last night, and that, and that miss, uh, you know, there's an incredible miss, the cap, you know, a, a night of misses for him. And you kind of think, this, if, if you keep persisting with this, and this is the problem with Arsenal, even though last night was an exceptional way of, of undermining themselves, when any of these things happen, you, you have, you're left with the sensation that, well, we, we've seen all this before. Yeah, and Philippe, the board have seen all this before. Everybody at Arsenal knows that this is what's going to happen in the Champions League. They're going to get through the group stage and then they're going to get knocked out. So is this any different from any other year, assuming they don't manage to come back in Monaco? Does this really have any impact on Wenger's future? I don't necessarily think so. Apparently Stan Kroenke was um, at the ground yesterday. Um, he's the battle of charm, it seems. I mean, it doesn't come often, but when he comes to the stadium, the team doesn't perform. Um, I don't think it's going to change anything uh, as far as Wenger's future is concerned, even though uh, going out to Monaco um, in, in the round of 16 would probably, I mean, I'm trying to think back, would be probably the worst performance um, of, uh, well, for a very long time of an Arsenal team in Europe because, again, uh, it's a team that Arsenal should beat comfortably. And I mean comfortably. It was never insist enough on the fact that they were, this, is, this was a shadow of the Monaco team which is struggling to get into the top three in Ligue 1, which is of the five major leagues, probably the weakest. <laughs> so you could say that Monaco is a team which is better equipped for Europe than it is for uh, the French League, which is absolutely possible. Uh, but on the other hand, in terms of uh, the, uh, the the results, the quality or the poorness of the result of Arsenal, that, that says it all. But I don't think, honestly, that this will change anything for for Arsene Wenger's um, you know, um, status uh, at, at the Arsenal. It, it, it would have to 
think the wheels would have to come off in a far more spectacular fashion for, for it to be questioned by the current regime. Yeah. Well, I suppose there is still time for that to happen. Although, yeah. uh, I mean, I wonder if you look at the, the sort of long-term situation there. I mean, when we, when we speak about the long-term, you know, Arsene Wenger is, is already, I think, 65 years old, you know, or 66 this year. Um, it's not as so though he's going to be there uh, forever. But the new TV deal that, ha- that has been agreed starting um, the season after next is so enormous that Champions League qualification, which has always been Arsene Wenger's sort of trump card, I think. I mean, it's, it's the one thing he's always consistently delivered. It's actually becoming relatively less important um, in terms of the overall finances of a club like Arsenal. Um, it's, it's, obviously, it's obviously nice, but it's not as though it's as, as crucial as it was 10 years ago. Um, does that change the situation? Does that weaken his position, do you think, in, in terms of the fact that, well, the thing that he always delivers is, is, no, is no longer quite the glittering prize it once was? No, I don't think so. Um, because it's the one thing he can hang on to to show that it's the thing he's the proudest of. It's, he always says, my consistency or our consistency, you know, there's 15 years on the trot, the 17 years on the trot. Um, I, I, I hear what you're saying about um, the Champions League and and, and the Premier League money, and I think that's such a very, very, very good point, and um, makes me think of the dangers perhaps awaiting English football, which might um, enter a new phase of insularity, if you see what I mean, because, to be honest, who will care about Europe when the money is to be made in England? Uh, but in, in the case of, uh, of Arsene, you know, you remember what he said about the trophy, that is not a trophy, but it is still a trophy. No, it is something that uh, is... Um, uh, it's a gauge of his... Uh, relative success, but w- w- whether this this is, um, I-, I would have thought that the opposite. I would have thought that uh, it would become even more important because Arsenal are now in a position. They're what the sixth or seventh richest club in the world. They've got fantastic resources at their disposal, and they're not making the most of them. So I know I don't think that will actually have an impact. I, I think it would be a disaster, to be honest. All right, lads, we leave it there. Philippe Claire, Dion Fanning, thanks a million. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, the guy's not sure about your your theory there, Ken, regarding the the Premier League, the fact that the Champions League actually the consistency in the Champions League won't be seen as as big a deal in future years. It is still pretty important. I think it might it might be seen once they get knocked out of a group stage. Then you're seriously talking about well, what leg does Wenger have to stand on? Well, Im- implicit in my question was the f- was the false assumption that only that the only thing that counts about the Champions League is the fact you get paid a lot of money for playing it. The it prestige is, factor is yeah. the the highest level of the game um, and that you know we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that that's quite important too it's not simply all about making it only but you know in terms of the the overall importance of being in the Champions League to the revenues of the English clubs it is uh, it's 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 shrinking hugely I mean we, had, we were talking to Gabriel Marcotti a while ago about you know, the European League it's, it's clear now what would be in that for the English clubs <laughs> well, like why would, why would they be interested in this you know they're, they're making so much money so much more money than you know, as much money as all the other leagues combined, all the other big leagues combined, you know, per year. Uh, part of it also has to do with their um, uh, commercialization, um, which is which is shown in a story today involving Liverpool and Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Which kind of beautifully crystallizes some of the tensions that there are between the, the prior tradition of uh, these English clubs and also the kind of relentless uh, quest for money that uh, now kind of animates them. Where Dunkin' Donuts uh, launched a Twitter campaign um, where they essentially tweeted the Liverpool crest and next to it a kind of mock-up version, like a Dunkin' Donuts version of the Liverpool crest. 
Oh yeah, I see that. So where where you've it's actually the old Liverpool crest. I mean now they've got like just the kind of bird on the, the Liverbird or whatever on the on the shirt, but this is the kind of old school one with all the fancy um heraldic stuff uh, which they've kind of got rid of. But um in place of the they've kind of in place of the shankly gates on the top, they've sort of put in this thing with donuts and coffee. Um <laughs> In place of you'll never walk alone, they've got America runs on Duncan. In, in place of Liverpool Football Club and Liverpool uh, Bird, they've got the Duncan Donuts dog with a couple of D's and an orange one and a pink one. And then instead of established 1892, they've got established 1950. The problem is they've also got, in place of the Hillsborough torches on either side, they've got a couple of milkshakes. Yeah, that's not going to go down. That hasn't gone down too well with Liverpool fans today. So, no, it, it, it's always, obviously... Maybe not and too surprising. Duncan Donuts obviously grovelling for forgiveness... Uh, never suspected uh, that their vandal uh, that their vandalism of this you know their play on the liberal crest was going to be graded with such horror. Um, but I suppose this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. You know, the co- company's looking for a way to synergize um, the the brand values, and it just so happens that the that the two torches on either side there were turned into milkshakes. Just, yeah, that yeah. was seen as the best way to, to synergize. Great week in the Champions League, unless obviously you support Man City or Arsenal. Even if you support Arsenal, you have to enjoy the drama. You really don't, don't. I'm sorry. Don't insult <laughs> their think, intelligence. I don't think if you support Arsenal. Yeah. It's like another year. I mean, every Arsenal fan at some at the back of their mind is thinking, Am I ever gonna see us win this? Is it ever gonna am I actually gonna make it? Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought we'd have won it by now. I thought we'd at least have got to another final. But it's looking like I'm never actually going to make it now. I bet there's that little voice of mortality in the in the head of every Arsenal. That's the effect that a defeat like that has on. I don't think that's a laughing matter for anyone. It truly isn't, Ken. I do apologise to Arsenal fans, therefore. Uh, finding Take it that smirk off your face. Yeah. <laughs> now, just a situation where I can't stop smiling, looking like a smug... Yeah, come on now. Let's just let's At just the end wrap of the podcast, let's wrap it up and tell you to remind you to listen to our second podcast out today. That's going to feature Irish Mickey Ward. He was involved in, uh, as well as being the star of the of the fighter or being one of the characters in which the uh, the movie was based on. He also fought in the Ring Magazine Fight of the Year in two thousand and one. 2002 and again in 2003 two of those were against Arturo Gatti part of that famous trilogy of fights previous to that he'd fought another absolute barn burner which uh, I watched on YouTube last night and now I'm going to chat to Mickey Ward about that in a couple of hours better finish this so we can get cracking on preparing for Irish Mickey Ward Uh, we'll chat to you again soon check out secondcaptains.com thanks Murph thank you Owen thanks Ken thank you Owen thanks for listening take care What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys.